Our scripture today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 16 to 19 and 25 to 30. But to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. I am cynical and more than frustrated by those generational markers. You know the ones. This is the builder generation, the generation of World War II and the Korean War. We often call them the great generation today. You should have heard how they were critiqued in their own time. It seems that most of their parents and their ancestors thought that the World War II generation was too close to mom and dad. But then there's the boomers, and we love to decry the boomers, don't we? Baby boomers of that generation that was holding on to power and won't let it go for the next generation. Well, Rev, Bev, you shouldn't be amen in your own generation, dear. <laughs> then there's those plaid-laden Gen Xers, the first generation not to make more money than their parents, cynical, smoking, listening to Nirvana. And then finally, the millennials. Oh, the millennials. We love to pick on the millennials because it's the me generation, right? They don't like to talk. They like to text. Well, I was sitting around a fire with a friend one day, and he was decrying the millennials. You see, he had to study all these generational norms and kind of movements for his work as a supervisor. And he was decrying the millennials because of this thing and that. And then I kind of chimed in with him. I said, oh, I agree, because... At the time, I was ministering to a bunch of millennial types. And he looked at me with his mouth wide open, rolling his eyes, and he said, Long Bonds, you're a millennial. <laughs> so well, I don't know about that. Depending on whichever survey, test, study you look at, I'm either the last years of Gen X or the first years of the millennial generation, but the thing for me is, is I've never felt comfortable being criticized in either camp. So I was happy this week when I found this article that talked about my life, my generation is an ex-ennial, born between the years of 1977 and 1983. You don't quite fit into either camp. Like the Gen Xers, your parents let you run free in the neighborhood without being watched 24-7. Yep. Like the millennials, you grew up with technology to some degree and feel comfortable with it. Yeah. 
like the Gen X, the X-Ennials, myself supposedly, we have at one time a nod towards cynicism. And simultaneously, on the other hand, we have an optimism like the millennials have. Well, I felt like it was describing me to a T, because I never really felt fully at home with Generation X. All those friends of mine in high school that were, were usually out at the curb of the school, smoking cigarettes, wearing plaid and flannel with Nirvana t-shirts, debating the depth of Kurt Cobain's lyrics. Didn't get it all the time. But I also didn't get the whole millennial vibe of that church conference I was at not too long ago where I met a young pastor and I asked him about himself and he says, well, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I said, so how do you pastor, pastor? <laughs> he said, well, I do it online because then I get to pick who can be in my church and not. I find a lot of hope in that. <laughs> Cynically, I did not. But whatever the generation I'm speaking about or that you fit into, it seems that most of us have at least seen, if not practiced ourselves, a sort of ridicule and cynicism and, uh, well, at least disbelief over religion or faith or God or even Jesus Christ at one time or another. In St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 16 through 19, Jesus is actually reacting to the way that his own generation was responding to both his work and the work of his predecessor, St. John the Baptist. You see, his was a generation full of exhausting cynicism and doubt. Sound familiar? I like how Jesus begins to respond to the doubters. You see, what I like to say is that Jesus here in the text calls out the cool kids and the cynics. Look at verse 16 through 17 to get what I'm saying. Here's the words of Christ. But to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to one another. Hey, we played the flute for you. You didn't dance. We wailed. You didn't mourn. He is most likely referring to the youth of the day that gathered in village life. You got girls on one side and, and boys on another, some of them singing songs of excitement and joy for a wedding, others playing pipes and mourning the times of lament like a funeral. And there they are, the way Jesus tells it, as if they're like opposed to one another, mocking each other like two teams playing dodgeball against each other. And that right there is proof that I'm not a millennial, by the way. I know what dodgeball is. In the picture that Jesus paints, they're mocking each other, and you have on one side team celebration, on the other side team lament. But here's what they have in common. They're all unimpressed. They're all unimpressed by both John and Jesus himself. And this is really his whole main point. The common interpretation of the text is that it's Jesus who pipes, it's John who sings, and the children represent the generation that's sitting there on the sidelines, not participating in the laments or the celebrations, but rather they sit back and they mock cynically. So much of contemporary society takes shape in a very similar way. People love sitting out and mocking. We call them too cool for school. This is the case with the dispassionate, uncaring cast of Seinfeld. It's the case with those guys that were on TV in the 90s, Beavis and, you know, that other guy. 
It's the case with the satire found on The Onion or The Babylon Bee and other cultural artifacts like Mystery Science Theater 3000 or even the humor you can find on ESPN. Now, I'm going to pause. How many of you got any of those references? It's not bad then. You should have seen the 9 o'clockers. They were like... I was like, guys, are you, have you seen cynicism in the world? They're like, yep. I'm like, you got it. Isn't it just exhausting sometimes? Isn't it sometimes just enough to fill, be in a world filled with critique, poking fun, mocking, and general disbelief? Aren't there times when you just want something to believe in, something to grab onto, something to, to free you up so that you can be creative too without the fear of a nagging cynic in the background? You know, I was sitting with some philosophical types in my backyard once. There were some people trained in the Christian tradition. They were atheists, and there were people who were just angry. And the ones who were angry were mostly smoking camel menthol lights. I remember that. <laughs> so we're sitting there. This one guy says, you know, I hate church. So why do you hate the church? And he gave me all the reasons why anybody would ever say that they hate the church. And it's pretty much standard fare stuff. <laughs> And then he says, therefore, I hate God. And he, and he projected onto the concept of God, the person of God, all the pitfalls of a human institution. It's a bad move in logic, by the way. And at that point, one of my friends who sat there quietly with his hands in his pockets, not smoking camel menthol lights, finally chimed in. And he said, you know what? It's easy to deconstruct. It's easy to tear down. It's easy to pick apart. What's hard is actually to upbuild. What's difficult is the hard work of creating and making something. Why don't you try that instead, and maybe things would be a bit better? Those words fell as a sharp rebuke on every one of us in that space, for we knew he was correct. You know, the thing about this text is we find out the core of human nature applied to the cynicism of against Jesus. They keep finding ways to write him off and his cousin John the Baptist. Look at verses 18 through 19 with me for a moment. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he's got a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, hey, look, he's a glutton and drunkard. They can't win. You see, John the Baptist was an ascetic, he fasted a lot. All of this means he limited himself. He was in preparation for a new world to come into play, the kingdom of God. And when you're in preparation for things, you often shed the weight. Ask boxers and fighters before fight time. So John goes out to the hinterlands of society and lives off wild bees and honey, and he doesn't have much because he's in preparation, and the people just cynically write him off. All of his efforts to uplift their consciences and consciousness, and they say, oh, he's just demonic. The demons would make him do such silly things. But here comes Jesus, the Son of Man, and with him comes celebration. You see, the, there's no more preparation for God's kingdom. God's kingdom comes with him. So it's not a time of feasting, it's a time of fasting. And so he eats and he drinks with people, and they just write him off again. They say, oh, look at him, he's a glutton and a drunkard. They can't win. 
But no, the criticism and the cynicism against Jesus here is, is not the same type of modern moralism we see in holiness movements where people say you have to be a teetotaler and tattoos are wrong and boys can't wear earrings and cable TV's terrible and public schools are going to hell in a handbasket. Not the same kind of criticism at all. In fact, it's a very deep one. Consider these words from the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, listen to this. His father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders of the gate of the town. You never want to be taken to the gate of your town. Let me tell you, friends. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Wow. Thank God we've laxed up a bit, huh? Indeed, the gluttons and the drunkards, according to the Old Testament, were the kinds of people that Mama warned you about. They're the reason why high school kids have curfews. These are the types of people that bring a scourge upon community, and they are to be dealt with quickly and completely, according to the Old Testament, people of God. John is an ascetic. Jesus eats normally. They can't win no matter how much they try to elevate their people and elevate their spirits, no matter how they go about doing it, they simply cannot win against the cynical despisers. Sometimes it's just never enough. One of the most cynical spaces in our media today is sports radio. And this past year, the NBA Finals came back on again. And once again, it's Golden State versus the Cleveland Cavaliers. And once again, we question the greatness of LeBron James. I sat there and listened. Ed, no, I don't know why I listened, by the way, to this kind of conversation for so long, but I listened to people call in and debate whether or not LeBron James is as great as MJ or not. Of course he's not, but that's not the point, right? <laughs> they play different positions. It's a different ballgame. Anyway, I'm just kidding. Finally, someone with two cents calls in and says, I don't get you people. LeBron can't do anything right. We say, you know what, this past game, he passed the ball too much. You know, he played unselfishly, and they lost. He needs to take the ball, and he needs to take the game in his own hands, and win, he's the star. So the next game, he takes the ball, and you call him a ball hog. He simply can't get a break. Neither can John in his day, nor Jesus Christ. I think it's a good thing that Jesus has confidence from the will of God. Look at verses 25 through 27. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And he goes on to talk about the intimacy between God the Son and God the Father. He has confidence, not because of what people are saying about him, but he has confidence because the will of God has been given to him, laid out, planned out in full. Sometimes when you do the work of God, that's all you've got. 
Because let me tell you the truth, whenever you start doing the work of God, there are always going to be naysayers. There will be cynics around the corner, and sometimes it comes from a place of fear, and sometimes it comes because when you do the work of God, you actually cause people to feel uncomfortable, to question their worldviews. Cynicism will come at every corner, and to have the strength to get through it, you have to have confidence, and you can really only have confidence that you're plugged into the will of God. There was once a family business. The patriarch of the family led the business, and his children did most of the day-to-day things, and one day he had a stroke. The children went to the hospital and sat there worried about their father's health first, and then second, they worried about what they would do if their dad passed away or was incapable of working anymore because there were things about their business they just didn't know. When he was taken off for testing and the children expressed this concern to their mom, the mom said, well, go, go, into the, go home to the office and go find the third cabinet from the left and the third file bit, pull it out, and there's a file in there that says, if I die. And so the kids go home and they go to their father's office and find the cabinet, find that file, if I die never seen it before. And they open it up, and there on the pages, step by step, every bit of detail, instruction they need to know to continue the business along. Thus, they could have courage because they've been given instructions by their father. This is what heartened Christ in his own life. I have a question for you. For those in my generation and for anybody in any generation still walking the face of the earth, which I hope includes you. That was funny. (laughs) I think you're being cynical with my humor today. Aren't you tired of being too cool for school? Isn't cynicism exhausting? Would you like instead a fresh, innovative act of God to touch your life? Look at the final verses of our text. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. With that, we have Jesus' wonderful invitation of hospitality to come to him and to drink from new waters. There you have the invitation of Peachtree Christian Church. In our rear gallery window, we have Jesus with his hands extended to the city of Atlanta, and the script says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lately, we've been talking and showing you images of Peachtree Christian Church and this notion of sanctuary. We're not trying to sell a beautiful space. Do you need to be sold? What we're actually telling you is that you can come here and find peace. You can find shelter in the storm and find rest under the strong arms of Christ here. Jesus says, take my yoke. What's a yoke? You know what a yoke is. You remember. It's that big wooden implement that goes on the head of an ox or the neck of a horse to allow a farmer to till soils and carry loads. If you have a very heavy yoke, it can become burdensome and troubling, and you can't take another step. But if you have the yoke of Christ, which is light, you can stand up, and there's freshness there. 
There's an ease of the Spirit with Christ. It's the same ease that allows you to dance with no concern. You remember Ebenezer Scrooge and his great conversion experience. He was an angry old cynical miser. Christmas Eve he had on moment or three. And he woke up and people called him a fool, running through the streets with such a delight and joy, wishing Merry Christmas where he couldn't before, handing out money to people. Didn't he sing that song in that musical? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for me. Really, you're not going to join in? I'm going to leave you hanging next time. It's that kind of lightness in the step that comes with coming to Christ. You can take off the burdens. You know, I have an uncle. He's one of the most uh, tense and intense people I know. Not necessarily known for lightness of being. But I was there as a junior groomsman on the day of his wedding. And I saw a delight that grew in his heart. I saw a side of him I never saw before. He got out there on the dance floor and did what Billy Crystal calls the white man's overbite. It is staying alive. Looked terrible. We could mock it from the corners of the room if we wanted to, but there was something about the pure joy comes over you. Friends, let me tell you good news today. Because the world is just going to be cynical, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to question everything. It's going to press in on all sides. Can I, can I invite you to rest today? Put down all of that. Just come in to the sanctuary of God under the yoke of Christ and... Take the deep breath in, for newness will wash over you. You will begin to dance, as the Jimmy John's poster said, like no one is looking, because there's freedom there. I bless you now as you go forth from here into a world that is cynical and questioning and say, I've got confidence because God's got my back, and I have newness of life in Christ Jesus. I bless you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.